to be back. I've forgotten how to um, do that. Now I've got a, we got a little table, at, uh, the table that we use at times. Or maybe I can just use this. If you are responsible for this beautiful podium, thank you so very much. I'll have to figure out what to do with my water. I have to have water. Uh, if you are here for the very first time, my name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder. and I've, Or if you've been here for two or three weeks, I've been gone for two months. So it is good to be back here. And we are delighted that you are here serving with us. Um, our focus this morning is on the Lord's table. We're going to be celebrating communion at the end of this service as we do every first Sunday of the month. But we don't always preach about, in fact, rarely preach about communion itself. But it's an important time in our series of studies that we've been doing to think more deeply about the Lord's table. So we're going to do this both this time and in September on Labor Day Sunday. I want you to imagine that you have a sheet in front of you that is titled The Almost Perfect Church, and you've got 10 lines there. Now, how would you fill out this sheet? If this were your sheet, how would you fill it? And don't say a short sermon. Please don't, don't say that. Not on my first Sunday back. I mean, I, I, know, I know what your answer would be. There's no perfect church. We all recognize that, but what would you use for your basis of, uh, of understanding what a very good church would be? I know what your answer would be. You'd say, well, it's in Scripture. We want to be a biblical church. That would certainly be the position of Grace Community Church. We want to follow God's design, His guidelines in Scripture. We want to be a New Testament church. Hmm. New Testament church, it gets a little tricky because we say New Testament and we think of this, but we also think of, of the early church, you know, the first century church. The apostles taught believers how they should understand the Lord in this new covenant that was given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, the broken body and the, and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. And then the church continued on after the apostles were off the scene. And when we think about the New Testament church, we're typically thinking about not just during New Testament days, but the days that followed immediately afterwards. And it gets tricky at that point. Um, let me tell you what I've heard a lot of times. People have said, <clears throat> you know, we used to go to Grace Community Church and then we moved to another area and... We looked and looked and looked for a church, but that church doesn't exist. Um, now, lest you think that's kind of cocky, let me just tell you, I've heard at least as many times, you know, back at our church in Pennsylvania or back at our church in Florida, we used to do such and such. I sure wish we did that here, you know. So, look, it's kind of like this morning. People said, you're back. And others said, you're back, uh, you know. So... It's kind of, I, this won't bother you, but it'll bother me. So I'm going to steal David's table over here. This looks a lot better. And I'll, I'll, I'll get this. 
And those of you that were saying, you're back, or saying, see, when that turned I tell you. <laughs> he doesn't know where, where he's up and down. And look, it's one thing, if you've visited a few times, I've met you a time or two, um, and I can't remember your name. If I look at you, and we've known each other for 15 years, and I go, please forgive me, I am really an old man, so. Our perception of a good church is so often based on where we used to attend or the big church down the road where they offer so many services and, and, and multiple and varied opportunities to serve. But, but the good old days, as we've talked about before, never really were, were they? And the great churches oftentimes ain't all that nor are we. The church has always had its problems. No church is immune. Well, this morning, as we practice communion, we're going to explore the way that the church practiced communion in what most of us tend to think of as the good old days, the days in those first few centuries before Constantine legalized Christianity in AD 313 and then just messed everything up. But remember, again, the good old days weren't exactly that. I want to use this time also to promote our church history class that we're beginning in two and a half weeks uh, here at church on August 21. Uh, The first session is going to be here at the church. It's going to be on site. And we'll have three or four over an 11, 12-week period, ending sometime in early to mid-November. We'll have three or four sessions here at the church, four, I believe, are scheduled. And the rest will be online video session. So you're not going to be committed to come every single week. Uh, we'll provide child care for the sessions at church for those who are interested, but we're going to need to know if you need child care. And, and you'll be hearing a good deal more about the specifics um, in the next few weeks. For now, I want us to just think about how the early church practiced communion, especially since so many want to go back to the way church was in the beginning, it's quite helpful to know <coughs> how the early church practiced communion because in Jesus, <coughs> we are connected not only to our brothers and sisters here. By the way, there's as much emphasis in Scripture when we come to this table on our connection to one another. Well, not quite as much, but it's still a, a great emphasis on our connection to one another as our connection to Christ. And we are, when we practice communion, when we participate in communion, we're not only binding ourselves with our brothers and sisters here. Not only are we binding ourselves with brothers and sisters around the world who right now or today or in in this, who are alive today and who also take communion, we're binding ourselves to them, but we're binding ourselves to all who have gone before. The church is made up not only of all who are alive, but those who have Trusted Christ ever since Pentecost. That's the church. And we're also connected with our brothers and sisters who believe the promises of God before. But especially since Pentecost, we are connected with all of the church. So, it's interesting to know how they practiced communion in those early days. It doesn't mean that everything the church did in the first two centuries was right and everything that's happened since then is wrong. Uh, Some people think uh, 
quite the opposite, that finally the church has gotten it right. I was talking with someone recently who was telling me, well, I think this group finally has gotten it right. We're finally back to where we belong. And, and I was like, I'm like, you're kidding. You don't think that. You don't think that we've finally gotten it right. <clears throat> Listen, to be sure, over um, the centuries, the church has gone back. It sort of had stops and starts, ups and downs. And when we look at Jerusalem as the perfect church, we're missing a whole lot. You read through the book of Acts as we have done these last couple of years, and you see that the church was always figuring it out. Always figuring it out. Look, many of the, 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 the doctrines that we believe today didn't get settled until about the 4th century. And there were stabs at it and some pretty good stabs at it. But as far as articulating doctrines the way that we know them today, it took a little bit. Uh, a lot of people think that that early church in Jerusalem was, uh, was, the, was the pinnacle. And then it just sort of had a, a slow decline. Not that it was a perfect slope. I mean, you know, kind of ups and downs like a stock market chart, but always trending down. Actually, I think I would tend to agree with a, a number of scholars who believe that after the apostles moved off the scene, not long after that, the church took a steep dive. In fact, you know, John was the last apostle alive. He wrote the book of Revelation just before he died in A.D. 90, 92, somewhere along in there. And of the seven churches that Jesus addressed, how many of them did he rebuke? Five. There was a sharp drop, and then it began to move back up. And it's, look, every era, the church has good things, the church has bad things. And since the fourth century, where a lot of the doctrine was hammered out, and that happened because Christianity was legalized, and all of this stuff we'll cover in this church history class, and it'll begin to make sense to you, and you'll see how connected we are to the past and how much what they went through impacts us today. If you'll take this class. Um, and, and, and since the 4th century, there have been plenty of times of apostasy and heresy. But there have also been times of great renewal. And good or bad, we are inextricably linked with our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And, and, and much of the positive way in which we deal with <clears throat> heresy and the way that we deal with temptation. And the way that we deal with issues that arise in the church uh, are based on what believers worked out many, many centuries ago. We know how to do things because they did it in those early years. So how was communion observed in the first few centuries? Much of the material in the next few minutes come from the come, uh, will come from the textbook that we're going to be using in this class, A Story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez. Now, some of you are very quick oftentimes to jump on Kindle and or Amazon and download this on Kindle right away. But let me encourage you if you're gonna if you're going to go to this um, if you're gonna go take the class if you think there's the slightest possibility order this book even if you're not gonna take the class order this book it's very interesting and helpful in helping you understand our heritage. Uh, I would encourage you to buy the paperback, not the Kindle volume. But that's because you know I'm 59 years old and. Uh, I, I use Kindle, but I use it's better for novels than it is for study books for me. Uh, since we're 
connected with saints of years gone by. Let's think about how they observed communion in those early years. And if we were going to do that, if this were, say, a second century somewhere around A.D. 175, something like that. Let's just pick a, pick a date. And we had gathered together for communion. The first thing I would have to do is ask those of you who have not been baptized to leave. Now, I, I think you can understand this. I mean, we are gathering illegally. And most likely we're not in a building. Almost certainly we're not in a building. We're in a home. It's not this large a gathering. But there are a lot of gatherings like this around the city. And they're connected together by a group of elders. Um, who have say over all of the, uh, have leadership responsibilities over all of the groups that are gathering. But you can understand, if you report us, if you're not one of us, and you report us, then our lives are in danger. They're in danger anyway. So we'll have to ask you to leave if you have not been baptized. Of course, the fact that we meet in secret has created a lot of problems for us. It's led to a number of rumors that have been started about us. Have you heard that we're cannibals? In fact, that we go so far in our gruesome supper that we partake in, we have at one time, one of our group baked bread and then put a a baby into the bread loaf. And a new initiate to the religion was forced to cut it. If you wanted to participate with us, and of course, in so cutting, it killed the baby. So we're murderers. We're bloodthirsty. We drink blood. We eat flesh, and we drink blood. Such are the the rumors about us. These 150 years since the death and resurrection of our Lord. Not only that, we are grossly immoral. Because we used to call the common meal a love feast. Horrible rumors about the activities that we participate in have risen about us. And of course those are as far from true as possible. We're married to Christ. We want to serve Him. But these things are said about us. But we love Jesus and we will participate in His supper whenever we gather. It's a joyful time. Not a time of sadness. I mean, we confess our sins early in the service, but this is more about resurrection than it is about crucifixion. Even though the bread and the wine point us to the sacrifice that our Lord made, becoming a substitute for our sins. This service... Is more in the spirit of Sunday than it is of Friday. Now that may sound strange to some of those of you who are new with us. Because next Sunday we're going to gather at the graveyard. In fact we're going to go to the catacombs underground. Where many of our faithful are buried. Because when we take communion in a graveyard. That connects us to those who have gone before us. And we feel close to them in the same way that we feel close to Jesus. Even though our meetings are in secret, 
And so unbelievers don't come in these inside of these walls to hear the gospel. Belief in Jesus has spread rapidly through the entire empire. And many, many have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. If you have friends or family who have put their hope in Jesus and they would like to join us in our services, then we will teach them, we will catechize them. And next Easter, if they find themselves or if they prove themselves to be worthy, next Easter we will baptize them. And afterwards, they will be welcomed into our fellowship. Before they are baptized, we'll ask them what they believe about various doctrines that the apostles taught us. Because they didn't have the New Testament as we have it. Would be another couple of hundred years almost before finally the church as a whole accepted all of the books of the New Testament that we do. So we will quiz them on the apostles' teaching. We will be especially keen to know what they believe about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit according to the teaching of the apostles. And we will expect them to answer in the manner of a marvelous creed some of our bishops have written just in these last 20 years or so. One who professes to believe what is written in this creed that we call the Apostles' Creed because it's their teaching cannot be a Gnostic because Gnostics believe that Jesus came only in the spirit. He didn't really come in the flesh, but we believe that Jesus was indeed born of Mary, a virgin, and also that he lived this life as any man would live. The words about Pontius Pilate are not meant to assign blame to him over others. It's meant to prove that this was an event in history that really happened. And we believe not some spirit or some spiritual teachings that tell us that there is a higher knowledge, but we believe in the one who came, was born, lived, died, buried, rose again. Those who follow the teachings of Marcion cannot affirm this creed either. Because they believe that Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, was a mean and vengeful God. And that only the parts of the New Testament or the parts of the writings that we have from the apostles that talk about a God of love are trustworthy. Because this father that we hear about in the New Testament did not intend for the world to be created. But Jehovah, this mean God, created it. And he was so mean-spirited. But the father set all things to right. You can't be a Marcion. And affirm what is written in this creed. One God, one essence, three persons. No, wait, this is only the second century. It will be another one or two hundred years before we start to make full sense of this. Irenaeus has said good words. Tertullian will say good words. But it will not be till Nicaea. 
in 325 before the church has a settled doctrinal statement about the Trinity. And if I may return again to the 21st century, I'll ask you to stand and quote a modern version together of the Apostles' Creed. Would you please stand? And we'll do this out loud. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Our text this morning is Luke 22. Verses 1 through 38, which is Luke's account of the Last Supper. Uh, It's a long passage, but it not only sets the table for the communion, so to speak, but it also lays a foundation for the mini-series that we're going to uh, pursue over this next month. Covenant, God's gracious gift to His people. Now, if you are brand new at Grace, you should know that last week we finished up a several-month study in the book of Genesis, which is very, very relevant for today. Things that happened back then are happening today. And we learned much about how God interacts, not, not only with his creation, but, but especially with his people. God's covenant to bless and prosper his people through Abraham was a prominent part of our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, and so <clears throat> next Sunday... We're going to review the Abrahamic covenant briefly and then also move into the covenant that God established with the nation of Israel through Moses. We're going to think about the covenant of law that Sunday and the following Sunday and how that pointed, all of that pointed to Jesus. Then the last Sunday of August, we're going to look at the Davidic covenant where Jesus, where God says, I am going to bring my king. The Messiah, he didn't use those words then, but I am going to bring the one through David's line. And then on Labor Day Sunday, which will again be Communion Sunday, our focus will be on the New Covenant. If you were paying attention during the offering, and I'm not suggesting that some of you were not, if I meant since you were paying attention in the offering, uh, you saw the words from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The new covenant. We're going to talk about that. We're going to hear that language this morning when we come to the table. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. There's beautiful symmetry in scripture. And as we go through the covenants that are in the Old Testament, we'll see how they're constantly pointing to Jesus. And then it's all tied together and after Labor Day Sunday we'll start a new series gazing on the one to whom all of scripture points Jesus in the book of Mark for the remainder of this morning we're going to read the first 38 verses from the 22nd chapter of Luke 
before we observe communion. Now that sounds like a lot. But there's not a whole lot of explanation that needs to be given. Um, With the introduction that has been given, let the words of Mark just flow over you. I'm going to make a few brief observations here and there, but for the most part, we're just going to read the word. Just going to hear God's word and, and allow the spirit to make connections as we've been thinking about Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham. As we talked about covenant and how it connects all of God's people to himself and to one another. And as we read and prepare for the Lord's table, ask yourself this question in preparation for communion. Is the Lord's table designed as something that I do for the Lord? Or is this something that God does for me? Think about that as we read the word. I'll ask that question again before we take communion. But before we begin in Acts, uh, excuse me, in Luke 22, let's let's bow for prayer. Father, um, we come to you today with joyful hearts. Lord, we come as needy people. We acknowledge that. And our time at this table says loud and clear, That we believe our only hope of salvation is in what you have done, not in what we do. And so as we read your word, Luke 22, where you tell the story of the night in which this beautiful time which we gather at this table was begun. Cause our hearts to rise in gratitude to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put to death Put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. It was important that that the leaders take Jesus in secret because every time they tried to do something, the crowds got in the way. And the crowds were very enamored of Jesus. Some of them were believers and followers of Jesus. Others were just excited for the big show that was in town. It was quite a show. And so they they came along. So the, the leaders said, we have to... We have to take him along. Then verse when he's alone, verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread, 
on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? It's a legitimate question. There weren't, everything had been rented out in Jerusalem. They had made no preparation whatsoever at this point. Uh, there were as many as 200,000 people extra in Jerusalem for the Passover. And if you've heard Josephus say 3 million, that's ridiculous. So just in case, I just want to mention that. But there were a lot of people in Jerusalem. And they said, where, where, where? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. I wonder if the disciples at this point, you know, are saying, well, this makes no sense at all. Or, or, or do they recognize it? They're going to find it just as he had told them. As it had happened over and over again. He had told them and, 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 and it had been exactly as he had said. So I wonder if they believed at this point. That, boy, we could ask the same question of us, couldn't we? You think about the great order that there is in the final hours of Jesus' life. There was great order all of his life. And all of this was planned before the foundation of the world. The officials were constantly frustrated in their attempt. And in Judas they saw, hey, here's an opportunity. We, we, we may really get him this time. Were they really getting him? Um, unlike the officials who were constantly frustrated in their attempts to control their world, Jesus was... As Kent Hughes points out, in complete control of his destiny. He was not caught like a rag doll on the relentless gears of history. He was not done in by a satanic plot. Jesus would accomplish everything he set out to do and on his own schedule. Think of who all is involved in this story. The disciples, one really bad disciple. The leaders, Satan, Judas, Satan entering Judas, Jesus, the man carrying the water, all went according to plan. And this is, though you may not see it at first glance, covenant language. You're going to see more of that as we go. Verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There is this sense of joy, even though Jesus would be in great, great distress in the, in the, the garden. He knew what he was doing was God's will, his father's plan, his loving father's plan. And he knew that he was doing it for them and he eagerly desired to eat Passover with us. Have you ever thought, I don't guess I've ever thought this until just this moment, that the Lord eagerly desires to meet us here at this table. Now look, don't, I'm not going, 
Catholic. Some of you come from a Catholic background. Some of you are still trying to figure it out. I'm not blasting the Catholics. I understand why they got where they did. But I'm saying Protestants put too little into this table. When we say it's a memorial, only a memorial, only a memory, then there's the chance that we take it too lightly. Our brothers and sisters through the centuries have not taken it lightly. Could it be that Jesus eagerly desires to share this meal with us today? Because we are sharing it with him, are we not? When we remember him. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. He's talking about that marriage supper of the, the lamb. That great feast when, when it's all done and we're all made perfect. We're made like Jesus. What a great great time that's going to be it's so it's it's interesting because we're going to find out covenants in the old testament were not celebrated by a meal they were ratified by a meal it was the seal of the agreement to eat the meal together and we think of this table as a sign of the covenant just like we think of baptism as a as a sign of the covenant as well. This signifies our relationship with God, with Jesus. And he's saying, I'm not going to have a meal like this again until we're all gathered at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper. He took the cup saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to the man who betrays him. They began to ask question, to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. They had no idea. This was startling information. Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me. This question must have consumed them for hours. You think so? Well, look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. <laughs> Again, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I, among, I am among you as one 
who serves. Everything about the kingdom of God is, is upside down from the ways that kingdoms are established and carried out, practiced in this life, in this world. It's all backwards. One of the benefits of this table is to remind us that we are recipients of Christ's sacrifice, recipients of God's grace through Christ's sacrifice for us. And that this is not something that we're doing to earn brownie points. We can't. We got nothing that God says, Oh, I really like that, Aubrey. You're my man. You're, you're in here. And you're, you're, practic- you're, you're taking communion. That's really great. No, it's only... McLaughlin said something. I know it's, it was funny. <laughs> it was Aubrey. <laughs> it was the Auburn man. Now I've done it. I've started it now. In Christ, we are given everything. And then verse 28. You are those who stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom. Just as, fa- as the father, my father conferred one on me. Once again, this is covenant language. You don't see this in the English. But the word confer comes from a Greek word. That is a verb form. of a. It's a verb of which the noun form is covenant. It's that same root word used in verb form here. It's the same as covenant. And I confer on you in a covenant, a kingdom. I covenant with you in this kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon. Simon. Satan has asked to sift all of you. As wheat. That is written properly in the. In the English standard version. In the Greek. It's it's in the plural. Satan wants to sift all of you as wheat. He wants you. He wants to destroy you. But I have prayed for you specifically Simon. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back. (laughs) So what is that? Jesus' prayer is not going to be answered. I I, I prayed that you won't fail. And when you come back after failing. When you have turned back. Strengthen your brothers. But he replied. Lord I am ready to go with you to prison. And to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, what is that about? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows for sure. I mean, you can twist it around to where Jesus is is not saying buy a sword, even 
that a sword won't do you any good, but it's kind of difficult to do. At the very least, have a little pity on Peter when he you know, whips out the sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Malchus was his name. He cut his ear off. One thing for certain we can understand is that what God does in our lives today may not be at all what God does in our lives tomorrow and vice versa. Remember when I sent you back without bag or purse? Well, now gather it up. It's a different time. Verse 37. This key verse. It is written. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus tying it all together. Quoting from Isaiah 53, of course. What is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough. He replied. We're going to pray. And as I pray, the elders and I'm going to ask the elders and deacons to come forward. Uh, and after we prepare our hearts, then we're going to serve. The worship team will be coming forward as well during this prayer. And we're going to serve them. And then we're going to serve the servers. And then we're going to get in three stations. And you'll come forward, receive the bread and the juice. We have juice. Um, as the body and blood of Christ. I'll say a few words before we get started after prayer. But <clears throat> you can partake right where you are when you come forward. Or you can take it back to your seat and partake as well. But as you come forward, just sense the community, not only with Christ, but the community that you have with your brothers and sisters who believe as you believe. Any who trust Jesus as Savior, if you've repented of your sins, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you are invited to join us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your plan that is marvelous beyond words. We recognize you as the creator of the universe, the holy one, the righteous one. We also know you as redeemer when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. And our hearts are filled with joy. We do acknowledge, Lord, before we participate in this table. We acknowledge our sins. Please forgive us, Lord, for demanding our own way. For fulfilling our own desires. For missing the mark and mostly for sinning. Against the holy and righteous God. Who created us and loved us. And has forgiven us in Christ. Even so our feet continue to get dirty. Though the whole body is washed. 
and we confess the sins of this week. Confess our sin. Thank you for the life that we have in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I ask you again in preparation for this time together. Is this something that you do for God or is this something that he has done for you? And you are remembering, you are participating, it tells us, fellowshipping with the body and the blood of Christ as we partake of this in 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us that. Allow the Lord through this time to encourage, strengthen, and enable you to live in the power of Jesus. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body. Take it and eat. In the same manner, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant, which is poured out for you.